0: Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with Our Body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please open your Bibles if you haven't already to the Gospel of Luke. And we are in chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at a string of passages dealing with both Jesus and John the Baptist. And so we find ourselves this morning in the third and final portion of this section particularly verses 31 through 35 of chapter seven. And this is a passage that has come to be known as the parable of the brats. It is a fitting title for the truth that Jesus reveals. This is a remarkably insightful passage that I think has much application in our day. And so before we get into it, let me read these five short verses for you that will control the majority of our thoughts here this morning. And now we'll be reading from the New American Standard. Here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the spirit of our Lord's words. He says, verse 31, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. If you've lived life any length of time, then no doubt you've had to... Deal with people who are impossible to satisfy. Whether it is family, whether it is work, whether it's even within the church, there is always those who, for whatever reason, refuse to be content. They are objectionable, they're disagreeable, they complain, they find fault, they possess a critical spirit. But whatever it may be, this is a category of person that all of us have had to interact with from time to time. There are those who, for no matter what you do or perhaps what you don't do, who will always discover fault with you. Another way of putting it is that you have had to deal with brats. And that is a quality of character that is seen most often, I think, in its rawest form within children. And so there are in this life, if you didn't know, bratty children, a term as one man comments that you use only when talking about other people's children. They have not learned, they've not been taught perhaps for whatever reason to bring their desires under control, and so they fight, they kick, they complain, they find reason to be unhappy and so the concept of a brat is a pejorative term, as you know. In fact, the Bible will often describe these types of children as those who are disobedient to parents, Deuteronomy 27:16. They are regarded as fools who reject their father's discipline, Proverbs 15:5. They are labeled as those who are shameful and disgraceful because they reject their parents' instruction and literally drive their parents away, Proverbs 19.26. And they are branded by the scriptures as selfish because they bring shame to the family for always fighting to get their own way, Proverbs 29.15. And so there are many ways that the Bible illustrates this, but it is always spoken of in the severest of terms. In fact, disobedience and disrespect of children to their parents appears among that list of very serious sins in Romans chapter 1 that Paul gives to mark out those who are in a state of actively rejecting the person of God, Paul there, as you know, is writing about the wrath of God, verse 18. That is the controlling verb and thought in this section. And he is describing there those among whom God's wrath is being poured out. And it's written in the present tense, which is to say that God is actively giving them over to the desires of their heart to pursue them with all of their might. And yet they are unaware that they are building up for themselves immeasurable wrath for the day of wrath. Many people think the wrath of God is some sudden calamity or destruction like a tsunami or some great devastating blow to your personal life. But the present wrath of God that is being poured out, according to Paul, is a kind of wrath where God simply gives you over to your desires. And so starting in verse 28, he says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. And then he describes what that is. And being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. Slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. So pretty bad list. And then he says, disobedient to parents. They are without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So that is the just penalty for such things. That although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice such things. So Paul has the severest of words for those who evidence a rejection of God, but among that list are those who are disobedient to parents. And so the scripture warns that there is a stern response of God toward those who are rebellious children, those who are disrespectful and dismissive. That is not a truth, by the way, that goes away once you reach a certain age. And so while we might make excuses for our children, God certainly does not. He does not respond in kind to rebellion against his established authority, which for children is always and primarily mom and dad. And so Jesus now uses an illustration of some bratty children to describe those who are malcontented with Jesus and his gospel. This is a societal illustration that any Jew would have understood well and primarily because of those Old Testament passages that I just read for you. But as I said, there is some tremendous application for this in our day because Jesus here is speaking of a timeless truth that has been relevant to every generation since his coming. And so let's take a look at what he says, starting here in verse 31, and this is the analogy, verses 31 through 32. This is the analogy. So verse 31, he says, so what then shall I liken the men of this generation? Now, you'll have to remember back to last week, but remember, Jesus here just finished addressing the crowd in verses 24 through 30. And remember, he began with a series of rhetorical questions to get them to remember what they thought about John the Baptist. They accepted John as a prophet. They were baptized into John's baptism, which means that they had accepted the message of John. And so his point was that if you accepted John as a prophet, then you have to accept his message as well. And what is his message? Well, it's that Jesus is the Christ. And so he was building a case for them as to why they must accept him. And so in verses 29 through 30, we saw how the tax collectors and the sinners did accept him, but that the self-righteous Pharisees and the lawyers rejected him. And so it was a passage, again, showing the kind of person that will make up Jesus' kingdom. This is a kingdom for the sinner. This is a kingdom for those who understand the sinfulness of their own sin and therefore recognize their need for Christ and recognize their need for his salvation. And so in contrast to these... Tax collectors and sinners, again, the tax collectors are specifically identified here by Luke because they were regarded by the Jews as the worst of the worst. They were the bottom, they were the dregs of Jewish society. And so it is showing the kind of person that Jesus has come to save. He has come to save the worst of the worst. He has come to save those who have no hope and considered unredeemable. But what he cannot save and he will not save is a self-righteous person. His gospel cannot save those who don't understand their need. And so in contrast to the ones who understand their need, Luke says in verse 30 that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for them. Remember, these were the leaders and the teachers of the nation. These were the lawyers of Mosaic law. And so these were the spiritual and religious leaders of the nation. And so having become the embodiment now of self-righteousness and self-determiners of their own truth and their own standard of justice, their own standard of righteousness, they have now rejected true righteousness, which is a righteousness derived from Jesus Christ alone. And so since they reject him, they reject the purpose for which he came, which is to seek and to save the lost. Again, he has not come to call the righteous, or you should read there, the self-righteous self-righteous but he has come to call the sinner to repentance. And so we saw that we need to be like the leper. We need to be like the tax collector, the paralytic, the Roman centurion, all those we saw who came to Christ because they were aware of their own wretchedness, their own sin. They understood that no work or tradition of religious repetition can save you, but rather faith alone and Christ alone is what saves the sinner. And so in contrast to that kind of person, again, typified with the tax collector, Luke records that these Pharisees and lawyers reject Jesus and therefore reject salvation. And so in light of that circumstance, Jesus now compares these self-righteous leaders to a group of austere, petulant children. In fact, notice he says, so what then shall I compare the men of this generation? That is, again, a reference to the leadership What the leaders are, are what the people under them are. And so all those who follow John have received a true righteousness, but all those who follow the Pharisees and the lawyers receive that which they receive, which is a rejection of righteousness. And so he makes some very indicting statements now regarding the men or the leaders of this particular generation. In fact, that phrase there of so what then shall I compare this generation? That is a classic rabbinical phrase that is used in the Midrash, which was an ancient commentary written on the Old Testament by the rabbis of old. And so they'd often use that phrase to make an analogy or to give some kind of spiritual assessment. And so that is exactly what Jesus here, being a good rabbi, is about to do. And so whatever he is about to say, this is a commentary on the state of his generation. And he is about to compare them to austere, malcontented, unsatisfiable children. These are like spoiled children who refuse to be pleased. In fact, Jesus will have some strong words just about every time he invokes the language of this generation. That is a pejorative descriptor in the mouth of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 41, O unbelieving and perverted generation. Chapter 11, verse 29, This generation is a wicked generation. Chapter 11, verse 50, The blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Verse 51 of that chapter, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Indeed, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Chapter 17, verse 25, but first the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation generation. So whenever Jesus invokes the language of this generation in the gospel of Luke, understand that what follows is an indicting description. He is about to speak of its perversity and unfaithfulness. And that is a description that is true for any generation who would uh, reject him. This is true for any who would be obstinate or rejecting of the true gospel, and that is precisely why this passage still has application in our day. By the way, I like what one man points out on this. He observes that Jesus here has absolutely no problem labeling people. This is seen perhaps as unloving and ungracious in our day, but both Jesus and John the Baptist, and certainly the Apostle Paul for that matter, had no problem, it seemed, with doing that. Not only did they have no problem labeling or categorizing people, but they had zero problem calling people out by name. And because it helped draw some definitive lines to protect people, to protect the truth. It helped people recognize truth from error. And so John calls the self-righteous Pharisees, for example, snakes in chapter three, which to a high-ranking Jew would have been very offensive considering their understanding of the serpent in the garden from Genesis chapter 3. He told them that they were nothing but chaff, destined to be burned in fire. Jesus all throughout the Gospels calls these people hypocrites, blind guides, sons of hells, fools, thieves, self-indulgent. These are people that are clean on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. They're described as painted graves and whitewashed tombs by him. He calls them snakes and vipers as well and labels them multiple times as murderers and all of that in just one speech in Matthew chapter 23. And so again, as this one man states, to call these religious leaders brats in this passage is for Jesus to show some relative restraint. This is rather mild compared to what he will call them. And so in our day of political correctness and trying to guard against every possible and perceived micro-offense, Jesus had no problem stating such things. But always for the purpose of helping people to see the truth. He wanted to draw some very clear lines between truth and falsehood. In fact, that is an act of love. It is always love to help people see the truth and to warn them to flee from those who speak falsehood. And so here we see him publicly establish some very bold lines between the righteous and self-righteous. And so notice the analogy, verse 32. He states, these people are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now, this is a cultural analogy that would have been understood immediately by these people. The Agora, or what is called here the marketplace, was a very public location. The Agora was typically the center of commerce. It was the public square. It was typically the center of town. And so it's where everyone came to do both business and play. It was the plaza of the ancients. And so it was something that existed in every town and every village. And so it was common in this day for the children to gather and to play in the center of the marketplace. Perhaps all their parents would shop or be engaged in business and trade. And so the children would find a way to occupy their time. And so what Jesus is describing here is a game that was often played by the young people. He gives a very simple picture here. This is something very easy to understand. And so essentially the children here are described as mimicking adults. And you understand this if you have children. There is hardly a day in my home in which my daughter does not try to dress up and mimic my wife in some way, whether it is cleaning or singing or dancing or talking on the phone, whatever it may be. You give a young boy a stick or a toy gun and he quickly becomes some kind of war hero. And so for the children of old, this was no different. And so in this particular analogy, Jesus reveals, notice, two games that they would play. And they were patterned off of the two greatest social events in Jewish life, namely a wedding and a funeral. A flute and the dancing would be speaking of a wedding, and the singing and dirge here responded to with weeping would be speaking of a funeral. And so what they would do is some children would be on one side of the marketplace, and they would call out to the other side, and that side would need to respond in an appropriate way. They'd call out with a song and the children would react. If it was festive and happy, they were supposed to laugh, they were supposed to dance and pretend that they were at a wedding feast. Someone would be the bride, someone would be the groom, some would be the bridesmaid, some would be the groomsman. On the other hand, if they sang a dirge and they played flutes in dissonance, then they were to respond by pretending to cry, to pretend to weep and to wail like the professional mourners Some would be bearers. Some would be family members. Someone would get to be the dead guy. And so this was a game. This is how they would pass the time before the iPhone. And so Jesus here describes the scene as one in which every time certain children call out to the others, they're met with obstinacy. They were met with stubborn, unhappy children. In other words, these are bratty children who refuse to play. And the key point to understand is that they are refusing to play regardless of the game that is being offered them. And because these are children who will not be satisfied, they don't like the options, they don't like what they're being offered, and so they simply reject and refuse to play as stubborn, spoiled children. These are peevish, unwilling children who simply cross their arms and reject what is offered. And so it is a perfect picture. Jesus is using these well-known societal functions to describe the extreme polarities of human emotion. You've got great joy on the one hand in the wedding. You've got deep grief on the other in the funeral. And so in verses 33 through 34, he then applies this analogy So he gives the analogy in 31 through 32, and then he gives the application in 33 through 34. And notice, please, the word for in verse 33. That is a word, as you know, that functions to give reason. And so he compares his generation to these children, 31 through 32, but he now explains why, verse 33. And so notice he states, for... John the Baptist has come eating and no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. But on the other hand, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, John the Baptist was not exactly what you would call an encouraging preacher, was he? He was pure hellfire and condemnation. He preached hard of the wrath to come. He warned of that ever approaching judgment. He spoke of fire and burning. His illustration was that of sifting out that which was false. And so John sang the dirge, right? He preached in dissonance. Now there was some good news, of course, because he did speak of that Lamb of God who was to come and take away the sins of the world but he had a major emphasis in his preaching upon repentance. He majored on judgment and condemnation and wrath. And so he called these people to get right with their God. There was urgency in his preaching. There was a heightened sense that time was tremendously short. And so he preached a sober message. This was a serious message And yet there was always a hint of light, despite the dark themes. He did speak of a way of escape, but the tone of his preaching was that you are in extreme danger. And so you would do well to deal with that issue now. You would do well not to presume that tomorrow has somehow been promised to you. And so this is what he preached. And everything that he said was true. There an a point in time in which the wrath of God is coming. Judgment is inevitable. There is no escape. There is no human who can flee from such sweeping indictments of a holy and righteous judge. Scriptures are clear that there is a sifting that is still to come in which the righteous cosmic judge of the universe will separate the wheat from the chaff. He will line up the goats on one side and he will put his sheep on the other. He will expose the true repenters from the self-righteous and self-condemned. That is a message that is both true and accurate, biblically speaking, and for which the scriptures pull zero punches. In fact, the Old Testament is filled with such warning. Jesus spoke of it often. Paul and the apostles teach of it over and over and again. The book of Revelation describes it in vivid, fearful detail. And so John was a preacher of truth. He was a preacher of warning. He was a prophetic voice calling the people to repent and to get right with their God. And so John sang a dirge. He heralded his message in a minor key. And yet instead of weeping as they ought to have, Jesus describes his generation as petulant children who cross their arms and refuse to play. They would not respond to such a call. And so while many of the hopeless tax collectors and sinners were willing to respond because they understood their hopelessness, the point of Jesus here was to reveal the state of the nation, to reveal the state of this apostate religion embodied by this leadership. This was a generation represented here by the scribes and the Pharisees as utterly corrupt. This was a day of dead and heartless rote religion. This had nothing to do with true salvation, and because they thought that salvation came through religious tradition. They thought it came through religious law-keeping, and so this was an exceedingly self-righteous generation who rejected God's purposes for them. Verse thirty. And so the self-righteous religious people did not respond to the message of John because they thought that they already possessed a righteousness. They had the religion. They were the teachers and the lawyers of a very skewed interpretation of Old Testament law. They thought they had the truth. They thought that God was somehow on their side. But what they did not see was that they were trapped in a religious system that had fallen very far from faithfulness. And so they were blinded by their own self-righteousness. They did not see a need to flee from the wrath to come because they thought that they found escape through religious tradition and efforts. And so John came eating no bread and drinking no wine. A picture consistent with what you do when you're in a state of grieving, Your appetite fades, your desire for normal life fades because you are consumed by a very grave, impending reality. And so he ate nothing but locusts and wild honey. The idea here of bread and wine is simply a reference to everyday life. In fact, in chapter 17 and verse 25 of Luke, that verse I read for you earlier, Jesus said there, but the son of man, speaking of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then he goes on, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the son of man. And here it is. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given to marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, eating and drinking is simply a reference to life, a reference to normal, everyday life a reference to thinking that today is going to be just like yesterday and that tomorrow will be like today. And so all of Israel was engaged in such normal things and presuming that tomorrow would come. John was not. He knew that the day of the Messiah was upon him. The day of the Messiah was upon the nation. And because the nature of coming judgment, historically speaking, in the scriptures, had always been suddenly and without warning. It was always coming when least expected. And so John here, very aware of the nature of God's judgment and knowing that judgment is what would accompany the coming of the Son of Man, he refused to become entangled in the affairs of everyday life. He lived as one borderline paranoid of that impending day. And he was the greatest man born among women. An indication, by the way, I think, as to how we ought to live. You don't necessarily have to wear camel's hair and eat locusts and honey, but we would do well to remember that the return of the Lord, hear this, will be very sudden. In like fact, Jesus said it there himself in verse 30 of chapter 17, and it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. It will come just as sudden, it will be just as shocking. Which means that our lives ought to function differently than this world. I read for you 2 Peter chapter 3, very apocalyptic passage. 2nd Peter chapter 3 this is verses 3 through 15 know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation in other words eating drinking and marrying But when they say this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Again, a reference to the sudden judgment in the days of Noah. That judgment has lost remembrance in their minds. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So why has he not destroyed the world and brought forth that day of wrath? Well, because he is patiently waiting for the fullness of his elect to come in. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief that is suddenly and unexpectedly in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works shall be burned up. So since all these things are be destroyed in this way, what sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. What is the proper disposition for one who claims Christ will to keep yourself unstained from the affairs of this world? Paul says, you have not been destined for wrath. You have been destined for salvation. But in light of that, understand that the coming of Christ will be utterly unexpected. It will be the day of wrath. He will come like a thief in the night. And in that moment, every pursuit of this world will come to a screeching halt. And this is what John was expecting. He did not understand that Christ was going to come twice. He thought he was going to come and it was going to be that final judgment form where he would be bringing his wrath with him, sifting out the wheat from the chaff. And so living as he did, the religious leaders and religious generation began to think that he was crazy. He kept warning of judgment, warning of judgment. And when judgment seemingly never came, then all they could conclude was that he was a man possessed by a demon. He was off his rocker. And this is the response that you get sometimes when you warn a person of the wrath to come, is it not? They're a person who's lived their life perhaps just as they did the day before. Nothing's changed, nothing's different. They eat, they drink, they're given to marriage. They go about the affairs of everyday life as they hurl toward that inevitable day. And so, as you speak of these things and warn of all that is to come, they look at you as if you are crazy. Why so serious? Why so radical? As Paul would say, why do you sacrifice so much and look like a fool? Just live your life, pursue the moment. And so because judgment never seemed to come for these people to whom John was preaching repentance, they began to think that he was radical, that he was delusional. He was sad. He was gloomy. He was that pessimistic preacher in the desert. And so they thought he had no idea what he was talking about at some point. And especially because the one to whom he pointed, namely Jesus, seemed to be a very far cry from the one that John was describing in his preaching. He was a very far cry from ushering in the wrath of God. Jesus didn't seem to be judging and condemning. Nowhere did he seem to be sifting his threshing floor And so you could imagine John was, at this point, becoming rather discredited. He was now locked up in prison and beginning to be forgotten. And the one to whom he was pointing doesn't seem to match the character of what he was saying was going to come. And so John was relegated to the insane. He refused to live as a normal person. He was always hollering about wrath and judgment. And so his pessimistic preaching was no longer desirable to the religious elite. And so they crossed their arms at him. They would not weep over their sin at his dissonant dirge. And so while John came and blew the minor key. Jesus comes along now and plays the wedding flute. Verse 34, in contradistinction from John, Jesus says, the son of man, again, speaking of himself, has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So while John is apparently too separated from society and a crazy man with crazy ideas, John, Jesus now for the religious leaders is not separate enough. John may have a demon, but Jesus is a gluttonous drunk. That is the verdict on him. Notice the present tense, but you say, present tense, behold a gluttonous man and a drunkard. So this is now the common thought of Jesus among the elite. By the way, they will eventually accuse Jesus of that same demon possession in Matthew chapter 12. They attributed the works that Jesus did by the Holy Spirit to the works of Beelzebul, which is an ancient name for Satan, means Lord of the flies, if you didn't know. And so John here, who possessed the Spirit, since in the womb is considered to have a demon, so also Jesus, who also possessed the Spirit, is also considered to do what he does by the demonic. And so any true preacher that comes and preaches in the power of the Spirit the self-righteous who think that God is on their side actually blaspheme the spirit within the spirit-filled preacher. And because in their blindness, they cannot recognize the truth of the spirit. They do not understand the true presence of the spirit. By the way, John and Jesus may have been different in their tone and emphasis, but they were not preaching a different message. Rather, they each emphasized a different aspect of the gospel. John emphasized judgment, guilt, repentance, and mourning. Jesus emphasized forgiveness, mercy, healing, and joy. But those are not different messages. Those are the same message. And because you can't have forgiveness without judgment. What are you being forgiven from? What is the judicial verdict from which he is pardoning you? You can't have mercy without first receiving guilt. You can't have healing without repentance. You can't have the joy of salvation without first mourning over the state of what you need saving from. And so if John played the minor key, Jesus played the major key. He often referred to himself as the bridegroom. A happy picture. He came to redeem. He came to present to himself a bride that was both pure and chaste. And so, while they may have had different aspects of the gospel message that they emphasized, it was the same message. And that is something that is true today. There are many who may emphasize judgment, guilt, repentance, and mourning, while others emphasize forgiveness and mercy and joy. But they are different sides of the same coin. And both sides must be preached. Both sides must be made known. You might emphasize one aspect more than the other, but a faithful preacher must preach both. And both John and Jesus preached both. But what's key to understand here is that despite which aspect of the message was being preached or despite which game was being played, to stick with the illustration, this was a generation who did not want the message. And so they could not be appeased. No matter who it was that came in the power of the Spirit, no matter what form or flavor their ministry took in the power of the Spirit, no matter what aspect of the message was preached in the power of the Spirit, those who are self-righteous have zero interest in the truth of the Spirit. And that is a very important lesson. And why, by the way, pragmatics, ultimately do not matter. John and Jesus were very different in their styles. They were very different in what they emphasized. Their ministries took on very different flavors. Jesus in his rhetorical style often posed questions and was more gentle in his speech. He made certain to live in and among the people. John was out in the wilderness, and he didn't go to the people. Rather, he made people come to him, and he made sweeping statements and offered very harsh indictments. But since they were both faithful, what they bore was the same faithful fruit. John was serious, sober, and stern. Jesus was joyful, likable, and winsome. And yet as they spoke, some always accepted, and others always rejected. And it was in no way a function of personality. Rather, acceptance and rejection was always a function, hear this, of the message that was preached. And I know that because the same kinds of people accepted their messages and the same kinds of people rejected their messages. No matter what they emphasized, no matter how they said it, no matter the manner in which they said it, the same person always accepted, namely the one who came to understand their sin and their need of forgiveness, and the same kind of person always rejected, namely the self-righteous who would not admit their sin. And I think that should be a freeing truth for you. If you are faithful to the message, people will not accept it or reject it because of you. people will accept that or rejected because of the state of their heart. The reason that John and Jesus were both rejected always came down to the singular fact that their message was hated. The hearts of the self-righteous are always hard. They're always impenetrable. And so what we see here in verses 33 through 34 is that they attacked the man, but because they hated the message. didn't matter what they were doing or how they went about their ministry. At the end of the day, hear this, they despised truth. And they would not compromise to the desires of the culture. And so these people hated to be called sinners. And so they justified their rejection of the message by trying to condemn the preacher's character. And that is still true today. It is the style that typically becomes the issue or the character that comes under assault by people. John was a maniac. Jesus was a drunk. This is nothing new. And so as one man says on this, they reject the style because they hate the substance. So what do churches do? They compromise the substance to get people in the pews. That is a major temptation that many preachers fall into. They think that if they're going to be received, then all they need to do is alter their style. They need to become more better tuned into the cultural context, figure out what the people want. And so they go straight to the pragmatics of their ministry. In fact, there are many faithful preachers who get attacked because they preach on hell, they preach on repentance, they preach on judgment and the wrath to come, which is a true and pure gospel message But when they get negative feedback or it doesn't start producing results or their church doesn't seem to grow, they begin to compromise. They think they need to get slick and figure out how to get people in, how to ease people in. And so they woo them with topics on self-help or only talk about happy things because they know that people are typically looking to numb themselves. But what inevitably happens the longer that they do this, and you see it all the time, is that churches begin to lose the gospel. There is no way that they can all of a sudden stand up in front of a much larger group of people who came in through the vehicle of pragmatics and now tell them to repent and expect them to stay. And because as the old adage goes, what you win them with is what you win them to. And so if you didn't win them with the pure message of the gospel, then don't think that you can do a bait and switch and all of a sudden get them to believe that gospel. And sadly, many pastors and denominations understand this. They understand this, which is why they never end up getting back around to actually preaching that gospel. The gospel calls, hear this, the gospel calls people sinners. And that is a label that doesn't keep people in the seats. But if you're going to be truly effective and used by God to change the heart of a person by the power of the Spirit, then a lesson from this passage is that if you are faithful to the gospel message and God is pleased to save a person, then they're going to accept your message regardless of your package or emphasis. The power is in the gospel itself. Style and personality does not change people. Quality of music does not change people. The color of the building and number of programs does not change people. Those things might fill up the seats, but they cannot change the heart. Rather, what changes the heart, and the only thing that changes the heart is the gospel. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And you know this. And so in verse 35, Jesus makes his final statement. This is what he means. He says, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children, kind of an enigmatic statement, but what it means is that truth is always shown to be the truth by the fruit that it produces. In fact, the word here for vindicated is the Greek term to justify or to be shown to be in the right. And so in the context, his point is to say, so stop looking at the messenger and begin to look to the product of his message. Are they producing a true fruit? Are they producing a lasting true fruit consistent with Scripture? Truth is not something determined by culture. It's not determined by people's desires. It's not determined by someone's personality or merely how they say something. But truth is shown to be truth because it produces true fruit. And so wisdom here, or the wisdom of God, which is synonymous for the gospel, will be shown to be true fruit, but primarily on that final day. That is when your message and the wisdom that you speak will be justified. It will be shown to be in the right. And all those false forms of salvation will be shown and revealed for what they are. Many may reject your message. Many may call you crazy. Many may yawn at you and call you a delusional fool, but a day is coming, beloved, in which your message will be vindicated. You will be shown to be in the right. And so we once again have laid before us this morning a great contrast between the message of Jesus and John, in the message of the self-righteous, message of Jesus and John is a message of grace. It's a message that you can receive an eternal pardon for your sin, not because of anything that you do, but because God was pleased to give you that which you don't deserve. That is grace. That is the essence of God's character. Remember, grace is not some kind of substance. Grace is God's once for all disposition toward the sinner. Grace is God's attitude toward you, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. Rather, all you can do is acknowledge your need and trust by faith alone in Christ's cross work alone. And on that cross, he bore your sin once and for all. You don't need to perform religion. You don't need to pray harder. You don't need baptism to save you. You don't need Lord's Supper to save you. You don't need to start piling up good works as these Pharisees would do. Rather, all you need to do is bow down at the foot of the cross and model the heart of the publican in Luke chapter 18, who beats his breast and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the promise of the gospel is that he will. We saw that with the leper who asked Jesus, "If you're willing, cleanse me." What was his response? "I am willing, be cleaned." He is always willing. You cannot outsend his gift. You cannot outsend his grace for you. But all that he requires is that you acknowledge your unworthiness. That is the hard part. <laughs> and then trust in the promise that in Jesus Christ, you can stand justified before him both now and in that final day. And that is grace, that is you getting that which you don't deserve. Grace is better than mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. But grace on top of that is God then giving to you that which you don't deserve. This is a piling of blessings. But in contrast to the message of grace here, we also see the message then of the self-righteous, which is the worst place to be. When you boil it all down, what made the Pharisees and the lawyers so much despise Jesus, hear this, is that they hated grace. And because salvation in their mind was something to be earned. And you earn it through morality and religious tradition. The concept of grace alone through faith alone was just too easy. Grace in their mind is impossible for how God must work. God is a God of justice. And so you need to tip those scales of justice somehow into your favor. And so you have to go and you have to show your contrition in some tangible way You have to provide your own atonement for sin. You need to perform the works of the law. You need to perform all those traditions and rules and regulations as if doing heartless rote religion could somehow save you. And so they hated grace. All they saw was justice. But what is so beautiful I think about the message of Jesus Christ is that you don't get his justice. That like you don't want his justice. It would only mean a righteous condemnation for you. And so what you want as I've said before is his grace. You want him to give you that which you don't deserve. Which is why then Jesus came, hear this, eating and drinking. The gospel is not an issue of your works. The gospel is an issue of you finding rest. There's nothing the sinner can do. In fact, anything that you try to do to earn God's favor and keep him happy with you is just another sinful action. Because all this sinner can produce is sin. And so your so called deeds of righteousness, your religious good works are nothing but filthy rags, as Isaiah calls them, because the religious offerings soaked through with sinfulness. And so if you're to have any hope of salvation, hear this you need a sinless offering. which is why the sinless perfections of Jesus Christ are so important to us. And so Jesus comes along and views his message as something to celebrate. He dined with tax collectors and sinners because he was the bridegroom. He was the one who would purify and make ready his bride. The Pharisees in their self-righteous attempts wanted to make themselves ready. In fact, they thought when the Messiah was going to come that he would somehow be impressed with them. And so when Jesus comes along and says that they're nothing but whitewashed tombs who appear clean on the outside but inside full of dead men's bones, that was an indictment against the entire religious system. That was a fatal blow. And so the question for us this morning is the same question that we've been seeing every Sunday morning through this section, and that is, so do you understand yourself to be what John and Jesus say that you are? That we are hopeless sinners in need of daily and eternal forgiveness. We are in need of the bridegroom to purify us. Or are you one who right now thinks that you're not all that bad? And so you might admit that you're not a perfect person or that you make some mistakes, but it's difficult for you to confess the wretchedness of your own sinful heart. It is hard for you to admit that you are thoroughly unclean and full of rottenness within the soul. Can you confess that? The reason these Pharisees hated grace was because in order to receive grace, they first needed to admit that they were wrong. They needed to admit that they were wrong about God, wrong about their sin, wrong about themselves. In fact, those who were baptized made a tremendous confession. And because baptism, hear this, baptism was what Jews did for Gentiles who wanted into Judaism. And so to come to John as a Jew and then be baptized by him with a Gentile washing was to admit that you were no better off than the dirty Gentile. That is a phenomenal confession. You were admitting that you were just as sinful, just as filthy, just as wretched and defiled and separated from God from those outside the covenant. And believe me, there was no way that the Pharisees could ever condescend to such low judgments of themselves. And yet that is the exact confession that you make if you receive this gospel. You are saying that your sin puts you outside of the camp and you are outside the people of God. But through the washing of the blood of Christ, you understand that you can be purified. You can be be made clean. You can be made whole again. And you understand that this is all of grace. It is all of God in Christ choosing to have pity upon the poor sinner. And it is so easy. All you must do is admit your sin. All you got to do is admit your need for a savior and then trust in his promise that in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. And then once you understand that and you understand that Jesus is Lord, he then calls you to follow him. And it is not, beloved, an easy path as we're going to see in coming weeks. It is a narrow path that Jesus says and he also says that few will find it. A statement I'm not convinced many believe. But for those who have found it, it is the path of both rest and hope, is it not? And many of you have found it. It is the path of abiding joy. And so for those of you who have not made a profession of Jesus as Lord, the call of this passage is for you to understand that judgment is coming. Wrath is coming and it will be a holy and righteous wrath. But I tell you the truth that there is a way of escape as both John and Jesus preached. The way of escape is by believing and trusting that Jesus Christ died and rose for sinners. And you place your faith in that wisdom. And the fruit of that wisdom, as far as Jesus is concerned, is a life that is now celebratory and burden-free. The burden and guilt of all your sin, past, present, and future, can be lifted. In fact, he beckons you, Matthew chapter 11, that all who are weary and heavy laden should come to him and find rest. Why? For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that is not a rest merely from the burdens and struggles of everyday life, but primarily a rest from the burden of sin and the burden of religious effort to find forgiveness which is what the religious elite had laid upon these people, religious burdens too heavy to carry. And so the gospel of Christ is the gospel of rest. In fact, that is precisely why he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners and why the eternal kingdom will be kicked off with the wedding feast of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19. And so while the gospel call is a very serious call because it involves the fate of your eternal soul, it is a call to enter, beloved, tremendous joy. And so if you want a joy that will not fade in this age of constant disappointment, then Jesus calls you through this word this morning to simply come to him. Come to him as those incredible models of faith came to him in chapters five through seven. All he requires is that you bring your sin, that you knit your need, and that you cast your hope upon his finished crosswork. And so our time is up, but the question of this passage is, will you be like these Pharisees who continue to reject him because he did not offer what they wanted Or will you come to him as one seeing your need and find rest for a weary soul? That is the promise of the gospel and that is what is laid before you this morning. Let's pray.